Please take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel. I have begun a series called A Call for Men to be Godly. And in this series, I am addressing some common temptations that we all face, but in particular, that men face. And so while these messages seek to encourage and exhort men, they are also applicable to everyone. I begun with the subject of sexual purity and a call for men to be sexually pure. The first message I preached on Father's Day. Sexually pure men, from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 to 8. And then last week, we began to look at this subject of sexual purity by considering the danger of sexual immorality. Didactic teaching passages are important, but it's also good to see examples from Scripture. And so last week, we began to consider a bad example to warn us of the dangers of sexual immorality. Next time, we'll be looking at a good and godly example. Now, both examples, the bad example and the good example, are from the Old Testament. As we begin to look at last week, there's King David in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. We'll continue to see that this week. But the next time, we'll be looking at Genesis 39 and Joseph. In the life of King David, in this particular instance, we see an example not to follow. It is an ungodly example, and we see again the danger of this kind of sin. But then we'll see the life of Joseph, an example to follow, a good and godly example, and it will demonstrate to us how we can remain sexually pure by the power and grace of God. And so last week, we began, began to look at this ungodly example, in this particular instance in the life of King David. We saw King David's sin in 2 Samuel 11, verses 1 to 5. Let me read those verses again to remind you of David's sin that we considered last week. 2 Samuel 11 says, Then it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. We wish we could read something else. David fled the temptation. But unfortunately, we see here in verse 3, so David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Instead of that arresting him and stopping him in his tracks, instead it says in verse 4, David sent messengers and took her And when she came to him, he lay with her. When she had purified herself from her uncleanness, she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David and said, I am pregnant. 
I won't review those verses, but we saw the occasion for David's sin in verse 1, the steps of David's sin in verses 2 to 4. And we learned some very important things about sexual temptation, the danger of sexual sin, and how to flee from it rather than succumb to it as David did here. And so David gives himself to this sin. His sin of adultery leads to the conception of a baby in verse 5. So now what will he do? So we pick up the narrative. Sadly, David, instead of repenting at this point, he attempts to cover up his sin. And so what we read in the rest of chapter 11 is David's attempted cover-up of his sin rather than his repentance from this sin. And in his attempted cover-up, his sin of sexual morality is now joined by other sins, sins like lying and deception and even murder. David should have repented. The consequences of his sin should have brought him to his senses. When he hears that Bathsheba has now conceived a child, that should have brought him to his senses. But instead, now we read that David seeks, or he he puts himself on a mission really to cover up his sin rather than to repent of his sin. And so this morning, what I want to do is continue to read through the narrative and see how dangerous this sin is and how it spawns all types of other sins that we might be warned but then instructed as to how we might flee from these things. So we now consider David's attempted cover-up. Look at 2 Samuel 11, verse 6. Having heard of the conception of a baby in the womb of Bathsheba, it then says, Then David sent Joab, saying, Send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah to David. At this point, David has devised already a scheme to hide his sin further. He has a plan to cover it up rather than to repent of it. And so verse 7 says, When Uriah came to him, David asked concerning the welfare of Joab and the people and the state of the war. The deception begins. David is not concerned with the welfare of Joab nor is he concerned with the state of the war. Instead, David brings Uriah home from the battlefield that he may lay with his wife Bathsheba to make it appear that the child who has been conceived is Uriah's child. The plan has little chance of succeeding for a number of reasons. Not only now, at this particular point in the narrative, but in the future. But we see how sin makes us foolish. And how sin makes us short-sighted. And an unwillingness to humble ourselves and repent of sin begins to make us desperate to cover it up. And so David begins to engage in lying and deceptive speech. His line, his deception, his schemes to cover up his sin demonstrate how hard his heart has gotten in such a short period of time. 
Think of this again. I, we emphasized this last time that this is King David, who's described previously as a man after God's own heart. This is David who had used his tongue to praise God so many times before, but now using his tongue to lie and deceive. Think of Psalm 8, verse 1, a psalm of David, where David writes, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Or Psalm 9, verse 1, which is a psalm of David, where he wrote, I give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonders. Or Psalm 145, a psalm of David as well. I will extol you, my God, O King. I will bless your name forever and ever. We could go on and on in those recorded psalms for us where David used his tongue to praise God. The lips that once proclaimed the majesty of God extolled his name and told of his wonders is now telling lies to cover up his own sinful devices. And this is disturbing to us. This, this is a bad example. This should warn us. This is how quickly, as we saw last week, how he saw, he sent, he took, he lay, and how quickly the progression goes and how we must be on guard. Here is King David who had praised God with his lips and now he's using his tongue to lie and deceive. Verse 8 says, Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and a present from the king was sent out after him. So what's happening here is David wants Uriah to go home. He's brought him off the battlefield to cover his own sin. And so he brings Bathsheba's husband home. He sends him to his house to see his wife, to be at ease to enjoy some time away from the battle, and David even sends a gift to follow. Again, what deception. But Uriah can't give himself to such ease and pleasure when his fellow soldiers are on the field of battle. So verse 9 tells us, But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. Now when they told David, saying, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah's response should have been a stinging rebuke that should have brought, again, David to his senses. Uriah said to David, verse 11, The ark And Israel and Judah are staying in temporary shelters. And my Lord Joab and and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? By your life and the life of your soul, I will not do this thing. I mean, listen to the words of Uriah here. By your life, King David... In the life of your soul, I will not do what you have told me to do. I I don't want your present. I don't know if he even knew it had 
followed him to his house because he didn't go. I don't want that. I, I don't want ease. I don't want pleasure. I don't even want what is lawfully mine before the Lord to lie with my wife because the ark is in the field. It's in jeopardy. And my fellow soldiers are at war. Uriah's concern is for the ark of God. He's concerned for the glory of God. He's concerned for the people of Israel. His motivation for denying himself acceptable and lawful pleasure with his wife is from his love for the name of God and the glory of God in Israel. So his conscience won't let him do what David has asked. And so here we see this contrast between David's deception and Uriah's faithfulness. Again, this should have awakened David from his hardness of heart. So verse 12 says, Then David said to Uriah, Stay here today also, and tomorrow I will let you go. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. So David has to continue if he's going to cover up his sin with another scheme. So he continues to employ schemes to cover up his sin. So what does he do next? Verse 13. Now David called him, that is Uriah, and he ate and drank before him, and he, David, made Uriah drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his bed with his Lord's servants, but he did not go to his house. So David's plan is, let me feed him, let me give him much to drink, and in his drunkenness, then maybe he'll go to his house and lie with his wife. But King David's scheme is not working because the husband of the wife that David took is acting with principle and integrity. So David's cover-up is thwarted. So does David repent? No. David's schemes do not work, so he premeditates in a most wicked way not only to murder Uriah, but even to use Uriah himself to deliver his own assassination letter, so to speak, to Joab. Look at verse 14. Now in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. He had written in the letter saying, place Uriah in the front line of the fiercest battle and withdraw from him so that he may be struck down and die. When we refuse to repent, there's no end to where we will go and what we will do to cover up our sin. One sin leads to another. The heart gets harder and harder. Sin becomes easier and easier. And sins that you thought at one point you would never commit are now easy to commit. And David continues to draw in others. He's using not only Joab, but now he's even delivering the letter to Joab for the death of Uriah through the hand of Uriah. A king should use his authority for the good and protection of his people. But here David is using his authority to destroy and kill them. 
As I said last week, men, don't use your spiritual authority in order to cover up your sin. Don't quote verses out of context in the Bible or use them for self-centered purposes to cover up your sin, to close the mouths of those who might expose your sin. But this is what David is doing. He's abusing his God-given authority that should be for the good of the people. He's already done that to carry out his sin of sexual immorality with Bathsheba. He's used them to carry out a scheme to cover up his sin and now to have Uriah killed on the field of battle. And so the plan is carried out by Joab. We read in verse 16, So it was, as Joab kept watch on the city that he put Uriah at the place where he knew there were valiant men. The men of the city went out and fought against Joab. And some of the people among David's servants fell, and Uriah the Hittite also died. Innocent people die because of David's sin and his schemes to cover them up. And not only does Uriah die, but other soldiers as well. Sin is never pleased with one victim. And when we sin, we are sometimes deceived into thinking that only we will be affected by our sin. As if that were unimportant. But others are always affected by our sin in one way or another. And when we sin and when we cover up our sin, the net is spread wide and many are taken in and caught into its consequences. This too shows us the danger of sin. So in verse 18, again, continuing the narrative, Then Joab sent and reported to David all the events of the war. He charged the messenger, saying, When you have finished telling all the events of the war to the king, and if it happens that the king's wrath rises and he says to you, why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know they would shoot from the wall? And when he asks, who struck down Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth, excuse me, Jerubasheth, Did not a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near to the wall? So when he begins to ask these probing questions, you need to remind him. Joab says to the messenger of this, You shall then say, Your servant, Uriah the Hittite, is dead also. So the messenger departed and came and reported to David all that Joab had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, the men prevailed against us and came out against us in the field, but we pressed them as far as the entrance of the gate. Moreover, the archers shot at your servants from the wall. So some of the king's servants are dead. And your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. I think it's worth pausing here. Lest we just read these things and forget what has taken place. If only David 
had fled the temptation at the beginning. If only David had taken time to consider the cost of his sin. None of this would have happened. But he saw. He sent. He took. He lay. Then a lie. Deception. A scheme. A cover-up at all costs. A hard heart rather than a contrite spirit. And look where it led. The death of these men, innocent servants of the king. The king's servants are dead. They lost their lives. And it's all traced back to a look that becomes a gaze and rather than fleeing, the king's servants are dead, Uriah the Hittite is dead. We need to just pause and take this in of what has happened. Things have spiraled seemingly out of control because of one look, one lust that then is not checked and not turned from and repented of. And now these men who were faithful to the king are dead and King David betrayed them. There's sorrow. Imagine this. There's all this sorrow because of the report. Here are the men who died. Remember, we, we should not defraud our mother, our brother in the matter. When we do from 1 Thessalonians 4, then there's all these things that take place. There's sorrow, sorrows in families because of something they didn't even know was going on behind the scenes. A man is covering his sin. And the carnage from his sin and from his schemes doesn't even seem to affect David. Verse 25, Then David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Do not let this thing displease you, for the sword devours one as well as another. Make your battle against the city stronger and overthrow it, and so encourage him. The news of the death of these men didn't even affect King David. Beware of the deceitfulness of sin. It promises life, but it brings forth death. It promises pleasure, but in the end it brings forth nothing but misery. It promises freedom, but it enslaves you. Sin inflames ungodly passions and it extinguishes godly affections. Beware of the deceitfulness of sin. Kill it early. Flee from the temptation at the first sight of it. Remember this when you are tempted. And run from sin. Let your mind go to passages of Scripture like this, which are given for us, for an example for us to, in this case, warn us of the danger of sin and here sexual immorality. That when there's the temptation, when there's the sight and you're beginning to be drawn away and enticed by your own lust, remember its end. Don't be a fool. Don't be enticed by sinful lusts. 
in the end it leads to death. But David's heart is hard. And a hard and callous heart rationalizes and makes excuses for sin. Are you trying to make sin not seem as sinful as it really is? Are you excusing your sin by thinking things like this? Well, God understands. He knows my frame. He knows I'm but dust. He knows I'm depraved and still have remaining corruption. And taking even truths from Scripture and verses from Scripture and twisting them to excuse your sin. But we're engaged. We're married in God's eyes. No, you're not. We're making excuses when we begin to think things like that. And then you hear people say you need to flee temptation. What that means is you need to be radical and putting it to death. And, and you hear Pastor Ernest teaching on the mortification of sin. And you think, isn't that a little extreme? And someone tells you, well, brother, maybe you just need to, to not watch television. Are you saying it's wrong to watch TV? No. It's not what I said. Oh, you're just a legalist. Are you saying I can't get on the internet and it's wrong to have a computer? No, that's not what was said. But, but we begin to now, with a hard, callous heart, make excuses for sin. And we're not hearing and heeding the wise counsel given to us. Oh, I have liberty. Liberty means freedom. And being enslaved to sin... And doing nothing to flee from it is not liberty, it's enslavement and foolishness. Often the principle of Christian liberty is twisted in order to appease one's conscience and continue in sin. If you find yourself going down that path, you're in danger. You're hardening your heart, you're making an excuse for sin, you're covering it, not repenting of it. Be warned. Be warned. In contrast to where David is at this point, not being affected by these things, we then read these words of verse 26. Now when the wife of Uriah heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for her husband. David was the one who put him to death. By his orders. When the time of mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife. Then she bore him a son. King David thinks his goal was accomplished, but it wasn't. The sin was not covered because then it tells us at the end of verse 27, but the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. He might have to this point hidden his sin from most people, but he didn't hide it from God. Are you in hidden sin? 
Man may not know. Your spouse may not know. Your parents may not know. But God knows. And He won't let it go. God is not mocked. The thing that David did was evil in the sight of the Lord. And all this scheming and planning to cover it up does not change the fact that the Lord knew that it was a violation of God's moral law, that it brought dishonor to his name, and it was, in fact, evil in the sight of the Lord. So although David might have thought that his scheme had finally brought the desire of covering up his sin, God doesn't let it go. And so we then see Nathan entering the picture in chapter 12. Months have passed. David has still not confessed his sin. So God sends a prophet. And his name was Nathan. And Nathan uses a story to get to David's conscience in chapter 12. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David and he came to him and said, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished, and it grew up together with him and his children. It would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom and was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or from his herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he, the rich man, took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger burned greatly against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. He must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. Nathan then said to David, You are the man. Notice David's indignation against the sin of another here as he hears this story of this rich man who won't take from his own flock to to feed this wayfarer who's come into his home. So he takes this man's one ewe lamb and he's indignant. This man deserves to die. David is exposing his own hypocrisy because he has two standards. He hears this story and he has a standard for, for this man while he has not acted accordingly. David sees the sin of another as far greater than his own. When we hold on to sin while we're indignant against the sins of another, we demonstrate how hard our hearts have become and how hypocritical we have become. And so, Nathan, I don't know how he said it, But he says, in essence, David, you are the man. You're the one who's done this. You're guilty. The thing you're so indignant of is the very thing you've done only 
much worse. You've not taken a man's ewe lamb that he loved so dearly. You've taken a man's wife. So I've said many times, thank God for Nathans who are willing to confront sin. Thank God for them. For fate for the wounds of a friend, but deceit for the kisses of an enemy. Better is open rebuke than love that is concealed, the Proverbs say. Don't be foolish and not listen to those who love you enough to confront your sin and seek your repentance. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 says, Admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. When there's unruliness and someone comes and admonishes you, thank God that they're willing to do that. And David was unruly, to say the least. He needed admonishment. He didn't need someone to listen. He needed someone to speak. David's hard heart required direct confrontation to expose his sin and hardness of heart. The Proverbs say in Proverbs 9, 7 to 9, He who corrects a scoffer gets dishonor for himself. And he who reproves a wicked man gets insults for himself. Do not reprove a scoffer or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man and he will increase his learning. Don't be a scoffer. Be a wise man and love those who speak the truth to you. So Nathan's not done. David, you are the man. You're the one who's done this thing that has so inflamed your indignation. And so he tells him, David, what you've really done is despise the goodness of God. So it says in verse 7, Nathan then said to David, You're the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, It is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house, your master's wives into your care, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had not been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. God through Nathan says, here's what I've done for you. I've anointed you. I've delivered you. I set you up as king. I delivered you from Saul. I've given you a united kingdom. I would have given you much more. But you, David, have despised the goodness of God. Our sin is always against the goodness and grace of God. And here what what God is doing is, is exposing what David sought to cover up. God is now shining light on it and saying, actually, it has never been hidden from my sight. And what it is, is you have despised my goodness. Here's what I have graciously granted to you. Not because you deserve it, King David, but because of my goodness, my kindness to you. And you have spurned it and despised it. In fact, in verse 9, David had despised God's commandments. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? 
You've despised, you've actually hated my word. David, again, who understood the commands of God, understood the word of the Lord, understood God's law, understood this was adultery, this was coveting his neighbor's wife. He didn't love his neighbor as as himself. Now he's committing murder, he's lying, he's deceiving. All these commandments of God should have convicted him, should have deterred him from sin. It should have restrained his heart, but he's treated the law of God with contempt. He's despised the word of the Lord. But then it goes even further than that. Verse 10, Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me. You've despised me. God is saying through Nathan that actually your sin, David, has despised not just my goodness and not my word, but me. And so he pronounces judgment upon him. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. Verse 11, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever man sows, this also will he reap. Galatians 6 verse 7. The mayor's bed is to be held in honor among all. It is to be, or mares to be held in honor by all. The mares bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Don't think, believers, that we shall escape the consequences of sin in this life. God is not mocked. Now at this point, David, if he was still hard-hearted, could have said, Nathan, I don't like anything you have to say to me. You're banished from my presence. Go away from me. I don't, I don't like this. I don't like what you've said. I don't like how you've said it. Go away from my presence. But thank God, David is finally repented. God shines the light on it, and now you have a broken, contrite spirit. Verse 13, then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. It's not the words that were repentance. It was a heart that was repentant. There are other places in Scripture where Pharaoh said, I have sinned. But he, he was not repentant. He had a hard heart. He said the words, but was not repentant. Saul said, I have sinned to Samuel on the occasion when he disobeyed God. But he was not repentant. It's not the words, but these words come from a heart that now is truly broken and contrite before the Lord And now we see David's repentance. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. No more excuses. No more cover-ups. 
Now David is truly repentant. Oh, how we wish it had been at the beginning or that he had fled and never committed the sin in the first place. But now he's truly repentant. Now he's not covering up. Now he's willing to confess his sin and accept the consequences. I've shared with you before, it it just helps me, I've taught on this, and how you counsel, disciple others who are caught in sexual sin. And, And it helps me just to think of it in three words. It applies really to any sin. How do we repent? What does repentance look like when we commit various sins? And the three words are disclosure, disassociation, and discipleship. Disclosure, disassociation, and discipleship. This is what repentance looks like when it happens. Disclosure. Now there's no more concealing, but now there's honesty. There's confession of sin. There's truthfulness. There's repentance from lying and deception. So there's disclosure. Now, David's no longer covering up sin, but God has shined the light on it, and now David says, I have sinned. No more cover-ups. But instead, he confesses. But not just disclosure. Someone can disclose their sin and not repent of it, but there must be disassociation. That is, you flee from sin. You abstain from it. You separate from the person related to the sin. You separate from those things, situations, places, devices, websites, movies, entertainment, whatever it may be that's the avenue. Now you're disassociating from it. You're not just admitting it's sin and confessing it, but now you're fleeing from it. You're, you're running from temptation. And there's principles of now in repentance of turning away from and disassociating from that sin. And then there's discipleship. It doesn't end with just disclosure and confession and now speaking truthfully about it and just disassociating from it. But now there's discipleship, the application of God's word specifically to the sin, doing, not just hearing the word, agreeing with God's word, seeking accountability, seeking a discipleship relationship to deal specifically with that sin over time, to know not only what you must put off, but what you must put on. This is ongoing. So this is what repentance looks like. And so here we see in the life of David that first D, disclosure. He doesn't disclose it himself. God shines the light on it and says, what you have sought to cover up, I'm going to shine my light upon. That's what the word conviction means. It means to expose. And he exposes his sin. And now David is truthful and honest in his repentance. It all begins with disclosure. I'm not going to take the time to go through all these D's, disclosure, disassociation, and discipleship. But here in the life of David, it begins with disclosure, confession, honesty, truthfulness, no more lying, no more deception. Look over, if you will, turn to the right to Psalms, to Psalm 32, and we'll see this in the life of David now. Now that he's repentant, 
He's no longer covering it up. Now there's truthfulness about his sin. Psalm 32, a psalm of David who now is willing to even speak of what he once covered up to say, let me write of these things that God has exposed. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. See, David now is saying there's honesty. And he recounts when I kept silent, when I was concealing it, when I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. But I acknowledge my sin to you. And my iniquity I did not hide. I said I will confess my transgression to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. So here David is speaking of a time when he kept silent, when he was trying to cover it up. And he was living in deceit and lying. But now he says, no, now I acknowledge it. I don't hide it. I confess it. And that is necessary for repentance. It's not equal to repentance. Again, people can confess sin for all kinds of motives. But here, it is a necessary part of true repentance. And without it, there is no true repentance. It's why in Psalm 51, verse 6, in that psalm of confession, David writes, Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being. Listen, as long as you try to cover up and hide your sin, you are not repentant. It's really this black and white. We're never repentant when we're trying to cover it up. Complete truthfulness and honesty are necessary for repentance. And it is a fruit of repentance. Now, sometimes a person might confess a little over here to get some relief, they think, from their guilt. But that's not repentance. As Jim Elliff wrote, you may repent of lesser sins for the purpose of avoiding greater ones. We try to salve our nagging conscience by some minor exercise of repentance, which is really no repentance at all. And he speaks of repenting so generally that we repent of nothing specifically or have no repentance at all. But when God does his work and when we truly repent of sin, now there's truth in the innermost being. And I have so often counseled as a pastor, it doesn't matter the sin, and counseled my own soul. That as long as there's concealing and hiding, there is no repentance. We fight against that in our hearts. We, it's because often we want to leave the door open a little bit to go back to that sin. And we know that when we confess it and when it's in the open and now we're truthful and honest about those things, that we can't go back to it as easily. But when there's true repentance, it's open the doors and let it be seen for I don't want to go back to that place. Proverbs 28, 13 says, He who conceals his transgression will not prosper. That's what David had been doing. 
But then it says, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Concealing sin is always unrepentance. Confessing and forsaking sin is a part of repentance. So I just say to you again, and in particular men, as we see this example in the life of David and the danger of sexual morality, beware of secret sins. As long as you keep it secret, it will grow and it will enslave you and put you in chains. And so... Let it be known. That's why I've encouraged you, men. If you are enslaved to these sins, if you're caught in a trespass, don't leave without telling someone. Don't let it go week after week and not seek a pastor or a spiritually mature man to say, I need help. As long as you conceal it, there will not be repentance. Sexual sin in particular loves the cover of darkness. It loves to be concealed. That's why nightfall is a prime time for all kinds of sin. And when people do certain sins openly in the day, we even say, wow, they didn't even do it at night when there's a cover of darkness. They're that proud of their sin. So speak with some woman about it and don't leave it. As long as you do, as long as you say, I'd leave here and I heard, I understand, I saw it in the life of David. He tried to cover up his sin. As long as you continue in that, then it's going to continue. It's going to grow. It's not going to get better and it's going to enslave you more and more and it's going to strangle you until you die. There will be nothing but death from it. Don't conceal your transgression. Confess it and forsake it. Own your sin. David is doing that now. When you read, and we don't have time to look at it, but when you read in Psalm 51, again, David now is thinking clearly about his sin. And over and over again, now he's speaking of my transgression, my iniquity, my sin. I have sinned. I have done what is evil. Now he's saying what God said through Nathan about his sin. And he is agreeing with it. It's true. This is my sin. And he owns it. He's not blaming others. And he accepts the consequences of his sin. In Psalm 51 verse 4, In his repentance, David writes, Against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. He didn't complain against God for the consequences. No, you're blameless when you judge. He didn't impugn God's justice. There are consequences to sin. Whatever God brings is right because as you've heard us say many times and others say, anything short of hell is mercy. So if I commit sin, I reap what I sow. And when God brings consequences for those sins, we humbly accept it. That is repentance. Sin has consequences. Christians who commit crimes go to jail. Christians who commit sexual immorality get diseases. Babies are born out of wedlock. A Christian who steals and embezzles from the workplace loses his job. 
you reap what you sow. That's not fair. I thought forgiveness from God means that those consequences go away. Sometimes God graciously lessens the consequences, but there's always some effect of sin. Accept the consequences. Sometimes that's what keeps us from repentance. Oh, I don't want those consequences. What is this going to mean for how people see me or my job or my marriage or this or that? No. Oh, when we're repentant, I've sinned against God. Whatever the consequences, I will bear them. So we finally see repentance in the life of David. He doesn't call his sin a mistake or a blunder, but when we read in Psalm 51, he calls them transgressions, iniquity, sin, evil, blood guiltiness. Now he sees a sin for what it is. Now his eyes are open. This is repentance of sexual sin. Men, as we look at this time in the life of King David, be warned. See the danger. And learn that if only David had fled at the beginning, and if only at some point along the way had come to his senses and confessed his sin, and instead of concealing and lying and deceiving, had been open and honest and truthful, before God and before man, it would have spared so many of so much misery. And the name of Christ would not have been so dishonored. So men, I ask you, are you covering up sin? And not just men, anyone. Again, this applies not only to sexual sin, but to any sin. Confess your sin. Disclose it to someone who can help you. And be honest before the Lord. And in this way, we put ourselves on the path of repentance. Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Father, these are weighty things and they're hard things. Just reading of this in the life of David. Lord, should bring our hearts to grieve over these things that so dishonored your name and so led, led to so much misery and destruction in the lives of others. Father, I pray that it would be a warning to us of the, the danger of sin, that we might grow in a holy hatred of it, that we might learn from this, not just what to do at some point down the line, but at the very beginning when we're tempted. Lord, when we begin to lose our senses, so to speak, spiritually begin to be clouded, may we be reminded by the Spirit using the word of of the danger of these things. And, And when sin presents itself as such a pleasurable thing, may we see it for what it is, a passing pleasure that ultimately leads to so much destruction and death and dishonor of your name. Father, I pray again for the men in this church, may we be warned by these things from Scripture. 
And may we receive the warnings of Scripture as much as the encouragements of Scripture. For you use them all for our sanctification and spiritual good. Father, I pray as next time we consider the life of Joseph who did not fall, who did not sin. Father, in that may we also be encouraged of your grace and your power toward those who would heed your word so that we would not be like David in repentance, but like Joseph in fleeing rather than sinning. We pray these things for the sake of your glory. In Christ's name, amen.